0: Well, good morning. My name is Kurt Witters. I'm an intern here at South Charlotte Prez. And I am um, just feel incredibly privileged to get the chance to preach this morning. And so at this time, I'm going to ask if you would go ahead and open up your Bibles or uh, your devices and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4 as we continue in our series on rebuilding. Um, if you remember where we left off last week, Nehemiah has come under opposition, and the rebuilding has, uh, the enemies of of the people of Israel have risen up, and they've come into contact with Nehemiah and his workers, and they have attempted to stop the work of rebuilding from happening. But Nehemiah has heard of this plot, and that's where we pick up today, beginning with verse 15 of Nehemiah chapter 4. Read with me. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 1939, as Great Britain was preparing for another world war, as you can imagine, morale was extremely low. Anyone over the age of 30 at that time was old enough to remember the horrors of the Great War. They'd been here before, and they knew very well what a struggle it would be for them to give up their comfort, their security, and possibly their lives in another world struggle. Not only that, but rumors were already circulating of Germany's plan to execute air raids and bombings over Britain. The people, mentally, were not in a good place. Well, in an effort to raise morale and prevent the spread of panic and despair, the British government came up with a slogan and printed it on posters that were supposed to be hung up all, all over the country, and the slogan read like this, Keep calm and carry on. Now, ultimately, the posters weren't put up, and many of them were destroyed. Um, Around 20 of the original more than 2 million copies are still around today, and if you have one, it could be worth a lot of money. In recent years, because of this seemingly ridiculous message on the poster to carry on with life as if planes weren't overhead dropping bombs on the city, the expression has become somewhat of a meme. I saw a picture online of a cupcake store that had put up a sign out front that said, keep calm and eat cupcakes. And I imagine if you're a serious comic book fan, you might have a t-shirt that says, keep calm and call Batman. But really, there's something powerful about the message that was trying to be sent out by the British government in 1939. Keep calm and carry on. I'd argue that that same slogan was really embodied by Nehemiah's response to the military powers around him. They were forming a coalition trying to attack his people to stop the Jerusalem walls from being rebuilt. And his message was not quite keep calm and carry on, but he had that spirit. If you are with us last week, you'll remember that at this point in the story, the work of rebuilding the city has come under attack from Israel's neighbors. The enemies have perceived that a rebuilt Israel poses a serious threat to their power. And they've organized together in an attempt to slyly attack the construction crew and under the cover of darkness, stop the rebuilding from taking place. Well, we know thankfully that Nehemiah gets wind of this plot and he decides to stop the building for a short time and stage a display of power. Under the banner of the great and awesome Lord, He organizes the people into a sort of national guard, and it becomes clear to the enemy that they've lost the element of surprise. And yet, the enemy is still there. Life will still be challenging for the people in Jerusalem. They're still under constant threat from those around them, but they need to carry on with the mission, they need to carry on with the construction of the wall. And there are three things I want to highlight in today's passage that will encourage us to carry on in faithfulness, encourage us to carry on in our calling as Christians, our call to persevere, to finish the race of faith. Three truths that encourage us to keep calm and carry on. They're one, remembering that you're called to serve faithfully in the face of foes. Two, that you're called to serve faithfully in a shared struggle. And three, that you're called to serve faithfully by a humble hero. Look with me again at verses 15 and 17 and notice that just like God's people in Nehemiah's day, you are called to serve faithfully in the face of foes. As we just talked about and remembered, at this point in the story, the attack has been thwarted. But the text we just read demonstrates that the danger still persists. Read with me, if you would, verse 15 in the text. It says, When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. The immediate threat has been dealt with. This sneak attack has been thwarted, and the credit is given to God. God has frustrated the plans of the enemy. And now the people can carry on with the mission. They can continue the work assigned to them by God. They can return to the wall and they can restart the work. In fact, they must because that's their calling. But as we read on, we see that the mission is not going to be a cakewalk. Our passage shows us that it's going to require some resolve. The text shows us that things are going to be quite different than they were prior to this attack. Read with me verse 16. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. See, Nehemiah has now divided the people into laborers and lancers. He's divided them into bricklayers and boxers the full strength of the people is no longer focused just on finishing the wall but half the people are now dedicated to defending the city they have to keep an eye on the enemy in a manner of speaking verse 17 shows further changes look those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on that each labored on the work with one hand held and sorry that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other even the gophers, the legs of the operation, now are only using half their strength to move equipment. Now they're also brandishing weapons at all times. bricks in one hand, a sword in the other. Verse eight continues to describe. Verse 18 continues to describe this new arrangement. It says, "And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built." Not only are half the people pulled from construction duty and conscripted into the army. But those who remain are armed and ready to defend the city. No one is exempt from their role in defending the work. And see, all of this change gives us a little bit of insight into what is happening during this phase of reconstruction. Although the immediate danger of an ambush has been dealt with, the danger that the enemies pose has not gone away entirely. Even though the people have God fighting for them and the initial attack plan has been frustrated, they've still gotta be ready to face the enemies that live next door. The people are still going to face military opposition from every direction. And though the danger is there, the people are called to carry on. The danger that the people face does not nullify the call. In fact, the danger has been a part of the call from the very beginning. In this case, For Nehemiah and the people, the key to living faithfully is avoiding the twin dangers of distraction and ignorance. On the one hand, Nehemiah could have focused his attention entirely on the danger at hand, could have tried to run an offensive military campaign against Tobiah, or he could have tried to stage a coup in Samaria. After all, the Lord is on the side of Nehemiah and the Israelites. In previous times in the history of Israel, the calling has been to utterly destroy the enemies of the Lord. And here it's clear that these people are enemies. Don't they deserve to be attacked? Yeah. For Nehemiah to focus his energy and might on a military campaign is to lose sight of the work at hand. They've been given a clear calling from God. Rebuild the city. Start with the walls. To go on full military assault mode here is to fail to accomplish the the job that God has given them. On the other hand, once the immediate threat of destruction from these nations was gone, Nehemiah could have gone back to the way things were before the threats. He could have completely ignored the continued presence of the Amorites and the Sumerians. He could have argued that it was God's job to keep them safe, that God had decisively given them the victory. And now they can trust him to fight off the enemies while they just focused on the rebuild. But if this had been Nehemiah's attitude, the building of the wall would have likely been stopped by the enemies as quickly as it was started. The people here can't afford to be reactive and they can't afford to be reclusive. They have to be realistic. Recognizing the danger Taking steps to protect themselves, but never losing sight of the mission. And the same is true for God's people today. We're called to live faithfully, to persevere, to cling to Christ, to make disciples and call people to faith and repentance when the world around us is often in direct opposition to the message of the gospel. Hear this today. Just because we have a clear mission, a clear calling from a king who's conquered does not mean we will be carrying on that mission without being challenged. We shouldn't be ignorant of the challenges that we will face as Christians. We can't afford to be reactive. We can't afford to be reclusive. We must be realistic. And Jesus offers us a starkly realistic vision of what faithfulness in following him Looks like. I mean, think about what Jesus says in Mark 8.34. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The path to following Jesus in faithfulness is not a burden-free path. It's a path walked by those who are weighed down with the burden of the cross. Again, Jesus says in John 16, you will have trouble the christian life isn't a cakewalk this side of the consummation of the kingdom we still wait for a time when we can serve god adversary free under his rule and reign in one place forever but right now we have to be realistic we have to understand the cost of discipleship we have to be aware of the dangers that come with following christ Faithfulness and perseverance aren't easy. They're battles. And yet on the other side of the coin, we can't forsake the call in order to fight anyone around us willing to put their dukes up. We can't let the pendulum swing the other way. We have to recognize that every threat that we face is not an existential threat. We cannot lose sight of the call for the sake of the battle. The mission of the Christian is not societal improvement. The mission of the Christian is not lined up with a political agenda. The mission of the Christian is not even mere theological precision. The mission of the Christian is to make it to the grave, clinging ever so tightly to the cross. C.S. Lewis gives us a great insight into what faithfulness to the call in the midst of many trials, toils, and snares looks like in the character of Reepicheep in The Voyage of the Don Treader. I don't have a Star Wars analogy today, so, so hopefully Narnia will work. Reepicheep the mouse has been seeking Aslan's country his whole life. And now, aboard the ship, the Don Treader, he's heading that way, heading east for Aslan's country. When others on the ship are tempted to abandon the quest as various challenges arise, Reepicheep states his resolve to carry on. He says this. My own plans are made. While I can, I sail east in the Don Treader. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my forepaws. And when I can swim no longer, if I've not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world into some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. In following Christ, let's be faithful, even if if it means sinking with our nose to the sunrise. Because like Reepercheep, you are called to serve faithfully in the face of opposition. But thankfully, you're not called to serve in isolation. You don't have to do this alone. In fact, verses 19 and 20 show that you are called to serve faithfully in a shared struggle. Faithfulness does not mean isolation. In verse 19, we see that Nehemiah has noticed a new problem now that his workforce is cut in half and divided. The people are isolated and vulnerable. Read with me verse 19. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. This is truly a problem. The people are too spread out. The people are working on their section of the wall individually. They can't see their neighbors. This means that the people are isolated and that the people are vulnerable. If one group gets attacked, there's a danger that their neighbors and fellow workers wouldn't even see or hear them to come and help them. Isolation leads to vulnerability. The same is true for us in the body of Christ. We're not meant to struggle alone, isolated from our brothers and sisters. We're meant to face our challenges in community, in the sight of one another. If anything, COVID has showed us how important struggling together is. In March of 2020, when everything began to close due to this virus, one of the most challenging things for me was when RTS decided to move to holding classes entirely online. I'm a seminary student. But seemingly overnight, I went from struggling in a classroom full of other strugglers to struggling alone in my apartment. Of course, I had Allison and my dog, But neither of them were dealing with the same thing that I was. I began to feel like I was vulnerable. I began to feel like I was incapable of completing my work. I began to think that I was wasting my time. Every pothole began to feel like a flat tire. And every molehill began to feel like a mountain. Why? Because I wasn't around people who could sympathize with my struggles. I wasn't around people who were working on the same things that I was, who felt the same pressure as me, who could give me advice or even make me feel better by telling me that they, too, were incurably behind. I was isolated. I was vulnerable, tempted to despair. Nehemiah recognizes the problem of isolation. He recognizes the challenge that his people will face if they're isolated, and he proposes a solution. Look with me at verse 20. Nehemiah says, In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Nehemiah establishes a system so that when one of the workers is in trouble, he can signal and help will come. The trumpeter is with him. If an attack takes place, the trumpet sounds and the people gather. This protects them from being overwhelmed. They can radio in backup. And I want to tell you this important truth this morning there's danger in being isolated. But if you belong to this body, if you belong to Christ, you are never truly isolated. And so when there's trouble in your life, sound the trumpet. Make your struggles known to those around you. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are able to help you. More than that, they want to help you. Whatever your difficulties, you don't need to walk through them alone. That's not the way to perseverance. The way to perseverance is sounding the trumpet. When Allison and I first moved to Charlotte, we knew almost no one. Thankfully, when we started attending here at South Charlotte Prez, we joined a life group. And it happened to be the life group that consisted mostly of youth group parents. I'll be honest. We never would have chosen that on our own. But it happened to fit our schedule, and that was who invited us. So we show up that first Sunday evening, and we discovered something very quickly. This life group sounds the trumpet. This life group calls each other to help when things aren't easy. If somebody in the group is struggling, they sound the trumpet, and the group is there to help. Let me also tell you this. Allison and I did our fair share of trumpet sounding in the first year we were here. And I'm so glad that we had those people to rally around us. We had those people in our lives. And I can't encourage you enough, if you're a member at this church or if you've been coming for a while, join a life group as they're starting back up. But don't just show up. Don't just show up hoping to learn. Show up ready to share what's going on in your life. Show up ready to sound the trumpet. Show up expecting to receive support. That's what the body of Christ is for. The other side of that coin is this. Be ready to rally around those who are struggling. I had a middle school soccer coach whose name was Coach Phillips. and. As a middle school soccer coach, middle school boys in particular, he was a yeller, but he had to be. But I remember he used to always say something to us before the game. He used to say, when you go out there today, turn your radio to Phillips frequency. And what he meant by that was whether we were in the game or not, we needed to be paying attention to him. We needed to be listening for his voice, for his instructions. We needed to focus on what he was saying, how he was trying to coach us. Not our parents on the sideline. And not getting caught up in the moment of the game. We needed to be listening to him. If you're in the body of Christ, you need to be listening for the trumpet. Pay attention to those around you. Pay attention to those who are struggling. And be willing to look deeper in people's lives. Be willing to dig beyond people saying that they're fine, that life is good. Look for ways to help those who are in the body of Christ. That's the job that Christ has given you. Rally to the sound of the trumpet call. Right now, if your radio is tuned to the frequency of the trumpet call, I think you can hear one that is particularly loud. It's not in our local church here. But a trumpet call is being sounded by Christians in Afghanistan. Without, I don't mean to get political at all. I just want to emphasize that things don't look good right now for Christians in Afghanistan. I read an article recently that said the Taliban are searching smartphones for Bible apps. Christians are being pulled from their homes. The trumpet's been sounded. How will you respond? I want to suggest this morning that the very least we can do is pray for deliverance and perseverance for the church in Afghanistan. We may not be able to see them, but they are not alone. The Christians in Afghanistan are being called to faithfulness and perseverance, possibly at the expense of their lives. Pray for them because they are our family. And pray for yourself. That if someday you face that same reality, you will be faithful. I hope that if I'm ever in that situation, I can find comfort in knowing that my struggle is one that's been shared by Christians for centuries. And that the Christians more fortunate than me know of my plight and are praying that God would sustain me. As we jump back into the text, notice also what is the banner that unites the people. Nehemiah doesn't say, keep calm and carry on. What's the comfort that the people can find when the trumpets sound? What's the truth that casts out their fear? What's the truth that unites isolated members of the body? It's this. Our God will fight for us. We can proclaim that truth together. Finally, as we look at this passage again, seeking to live faithfully, seeking to persevere, see this. You are called to serve faithfully by a humble hero. Read with me, if you would, verses 21 to 23, and notice something. Nehemiah does not exempt himself from the struggles of his people. Beginning in verse 21, So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, so that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. And here's the key. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Nehemiah includes himself in the struggles of his people. He does not exempt himself from the struggles of his people. The laborers are working through the night. The watchman doesn't get a break from keeping watch. The servants are passing in and out constantly. All of the city is laboring to ensure that the work gets done and the enemy's kept at bay. But the laborers are not doing this while Nehemiah stays locked up in a tower or while he calls out orders from the back of the line. No, we see that Nehemiah is right there struggling with his people. He's not calling them to do anything that he's not himself willing to do. And in fact, he's actively involved with the work in the defense plan. He's on the front lines offering his life for his people, leading by example, calling followers not as a tyrant looking for his own security, but participating in the work as a servant leader. He's involving himself with the plight of the people, taking on the mission himself in this way. Nehemiah prefigures Jesus Christ. We as Christians are called to live faithfully by a hero who has humbled himself, not only to understand our struggles, but to struggle on our behalf. Having just come out of a series of Philippians, you'll remember that Philippians 2 contains a great early Christian poem or hymn describing how Christ identifies with us in humility. On a cross. In this passage, we clearly see that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, involved himself intimately with the struggles of his people. He came to earth, took on human flesh, being both fully God and fully man, was tempted throughout his life, and yet, unlike every man that came before him or will come after him, did not yield to temptation. He then suffered and died a death which brought on him the wrath of God that sinners like you and I deserve so that you and I might not endure that wrath. Because of his sacrifice, death started working in reverse and he was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father. It's this leader, it's this Jesus that calls you to repent of your sin, believe on him. And persevere. We're not called to struggle in this life by a God who's distant or by a God who doesn't know our struggles or by a God who's not familiar with the difficulties of our situations. We're called to struggle by a God that is more intimate with our struggles than we could ever imagine. It's the risen and conquering Christ who calls you to perseverance today. It's the human and divine Christ who calls you to live faithfully in the midst of struggles. It's the crucified and risen Christ who calls you to struggle together in unity. Though there are many smaller battles left to fight, though we stand in the midst of many foes and though we may feel isolated and at times unable to see that we're not struggling by ourselves, we can be confident if we remember that it is Christ who has won the battle that actually matters, the battle with sin and death. Based on his victory, when struggles arise in your life that seem beyond what you could ever handle, you can confidently say, along with the people in verse 20, our God will fight for us. Remembering that, let's pray together this morning. Lord, may we, your people, live confidently in the truth that you will fight for us. Lord, help us to embrace the struggles that we're in. Help us to be confident that the struggles of this life are nothing to be compared with an eternity spent with you. Lord, help us to stand boldly and fight the battles that stand in the way of our calling, but Lord, give us wisdom to know which battles are worth fighting. Lord, when we feel isolated, help us to be bold and vulnerable with the people around us. And give us eyes to see the needs of our brothers and sisters. Give us the strength that we need to endure faithfully in following you. Lord, as we prepare to come to your table, renew in us a vision of the mission and renew in us a gratitude for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It's in his name that I ask these things. Amen.